0: Turn with me to First Timothy 3:1. Your Bible should be creased there by now. We continue our discussion on the church's shepherds, and you recall we're using First Timothy 3:1 as our home base for a number of messages. and by the time we get to the qualifications of verses two through seven, they ought to just seem intuitive. They ought to seem obvious to us. A number of years ago, I sat in on a seminar led by a lay elder, a volunteer shepherd. And part of his seminar focused on what he called misconceptions about church leadership. And as a vocational pastor, as one who pastors full-time, I was really curious as to his take on what shepherds ought to be doing and what they ought not to be doing. Here are some of his observations of ways church leadership is perceived, both by the church and by the leadership themselves, that maybe they've gotten off base. What he called misconceptions about church leadership. First of all, he said an eldership, this is a misconception, an eldership is a board of directors that exists to make decisions in meetings. That the eldership is a board of directors that exists to make decisions in meetings. That the concept of of eldership is that of attending meetings and voting on things, and then that's it. That's all you do. This is a corporate model which says that being an elder is like sitting on an advisory board. Where you meet every once in a while and you give directives to what all the other people are supposed to be doing. But this idea of being primarily a decision-making body, it puts a very unhealthy and unnatural separation between the shepherds and the sheep. It, it doesn't put us together, it drives us apart. Decisions are necessary, of course, but really only those decisions which promote the shepherding of God's people in which the shepherds themselves are to be vitally involved Elderships get off base when they get mired in these detailed decisions which ought to be made by a reasonable and mature man in his area of responsibility. On our eldership, we are constantly reminding ourselves, hey, is this a decision that one reasonably intelligent person can make? Or do we really need all of us weighing in on what color the curtains are going to be? We don't need to talk about that. Another misconception this elder gave, he said, eldership is only for older men. Eldership is only for older men. Yes, the word elder is used in the New Testament and it does have a connotation of age, but the term is really borrowed from the Old Testament and it primarily speaks of the position of the leader. It's not a reference really to the age of the person in the office. Now, all the qualifications of eldership listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, they, they do tend to be easier for older men simply because they've had the time to grow into these qualities, these qualifications, these, this maturity. But age is never listed as a qualification in and of itself. Now, I think it helps. I think it's easier for me to, to sell to you a 60-year-old potential elder than a 30-year-old potential elder Your eyebrows are going to go up and rightly. And what's the question you want to ask? Well, can that young man fulfill all those qualifications? But think about this. The church needs men who can be shepherds for 20 and 30 years. How effective is that for the church? What experience and know-how they'll bring to the church over time? He gave a third misconception that eldership is a hobby to mess with occasionally. That eldership is a hobby to mess with occasionally. The model of eldership we're going to see today says exactly the opposite of that. It is a calling which consumes you continually. An elder is to have a, what one person called a burning and a yearning for the work of shepherding God's people. Another misconception, he said that an eldership is a representative body to speak for different doctrinal or ecclesiology viewpoints. I know that's a long, uh, long misconception. He said it, not me. An eldership is a representative body to speak for differing doctrinal or ecclesiology viewpoints. So what do I mean by that? That an eldership kind of works like the House of Representatives, That you you need a representative from different portions of the church. That one elder represents this group and another elder represents this group. I actually knew of a church in Texas, a small church, that was dominated by four families. And so the leadership team decided they will always have a member of one of those families, of all four of those families on the leadership team. No. No. The elders are to be a unified body with the same doctrinal convictions, the same view of the church, the same understanding of the gospel ministry. We don't say, well, we need one elder to represent the dispensationalists and another elder to represent the covenantalists and another one. we not do that. At Grace Bible Church, if you're a member here, you don't have to agree with our entire doctrinal statement to be a member that would mean no one has any learning or growing to do, obviously. But to be an elder, there must be full and total agreement and belief in our doctrinal statement in order to preserve unity. And so, elders are not here to represent portions of the church. All that does is promote factions and division. Instead, we're to shepherd the whole flock and shepherd them toward unity. Toward unity. Another misconception he gave is that lay elders are the supervisors of the vocational pastors. There's a, there are entire denominational systems that believe this, that the lay elders, the volunteer elders, supervise the vocational pastors. That one of the main jobs of the volunteer elder is to, continue, to continually look over the shoulders of the, of the vocational pastors. Most definitely there is a team effort and we value one another. We value what we all bring to the table. But the lay elders would use their time more wisely in facilitating the ministries of vocational pastors rather than hampering them. And almost invariably, the lay elder who gets consumed with what others are doing or are not doing, is not doing his own work in the work of the ministry, and is now operating as a backseat driver. Another misconception is that worldly success and talent qualifies a man for eldership. That worldly success and talent qualifies a man for eldership. That skills, talents, know-how, a measure of success in this world, that that's a, a qualification. It helps. It's not, it's not harmful. But the danger of seeing worldly success as a qualifier it, is that worldly experience now becomes the, the benchmark for leading the church. That I, what I bring from my resume instead of what I bring in my knowledge of the word Becomes the most important. We would say that how. Such and such a corporation. Does something is not a valid source of wisdom. For shepherding the church of Jesus Christ. In fact there's very very little overlap. The goals are completely and utterly different. Elders are to open their Bibles. Not their corporate policies and procedures. For how to guide the church. Now on the other hand. We don't want elders who have failed. At everything they've ever tried in the world. As well. You don't, you know, sometimes young men will say, well, I want to be a pastor. And we find out that the reason is that they can't do anything else worth beans. And we would say, how about do something successfully before you think the first thing successfully you're going to do is, is, is uh, shepherd the church. But neither would we say that worldly success is an automatic qualifier for church leadership. It's not. It's not at all. Now, if those are some of the misconceptions about shepherding the church, and if the leadership of the church is absolutely serious business on an eternal and a a divine level, we would expect then Scripture to address eldership in terms of warnings and cautions and admonitions. And so starting here once again in 1 Timothy 3.1, we're going to see this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires A noble task. This morning I'd like to focus on Paul's description that shepherding the people of God in the church is a noble task. It's just a word, noble, that means good. But there's an implicit assumption here that when God says that something is good, then there is a stewardship. There is a caretaking of that thing that is good. There is a responsibility toward God concerning that thing. And for example... In Genesis chapter 1, all of creation is said to be good and then very good. And what was mankind's responsibility? To tend to that creation, to be a steward of that creation, obeying the Creator. And in the same manner, the office of overseer, the office of elder, of pastor, is a good task given by God. It's a noble task, but it's a position which isn't owned, it's delegated. The church is not owned by the shepherds. The church is, is given to the shepherds to steward and to be responsible for the goodness of the office, if I can put it this way, the goodness of the office of overseer and the task of eldership says that you're operating on God's behalf. And there's a weightiness to that. There's a, there's a, a heaviness to that, a responsibility to correctly ta- carry out that charge. You know, the butler of a large household in places in the world where they still have butlers, they have tremendous authority and responsibility and they own nothing. He's the caregiver. The manager of a large store may have tremendous authority and responsibility, but he owns nothing. He's just the caregiver. And so the noble task, the good task of eldership isn't to be approached lightly. It's not to be approached with a sense of entitlement, certainly. And in fact, the New Testament gives some strong warnings to elders and to potential elders by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. So what I'd like to do is bounce off of 1 Timothy three one and have you turn with me to Acts chapter 20. And in Acts 20, we join Paul on his third missionary journey. He's now on his way to Jerusalem. He's trying to get there in time for the day of Pentecost when Thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the world will be gathering. But in this final leg of his journey, he gathers the elders of the church at Ephesus. The body of men charged with shepherding the church in and around the city. And they operated as one governing body to many different little portions in homes. It wasn't a bunch of separated churches. It was one church that met in multiple locations with one body of elders over them. I think it'd be best if we just read this whole speech that Paul gives to these men, and then we'll focus kind of on the middle section. So look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I find it interesting that the last part of this text says that they are most sorrowful because he said they would not see him again. Perhaps they should have been most sorrowful because of what he said is going to happen in their church. Paul made some shocking predictions about the coming trouble the church of Ephesus was going to experience. And from this speech, kind of the center part, I'd like to derive six strong warnings to shepherds. Do six strong warnings to shepherds. And and once again, we want to mention, how does this help the whole church? Why not just do this in a seminar for elders or pastors? Well, it helps you know how to pray. Pray. And it certainly helps you know what to expect from your shepherds. And and perhaps for some young men hearing this, it'll serve as a sober reminder about the leadership of the church as you consider preparing for the task of leadership in the future. Let's do six strong warnings. The first strong warning, you must submit to God. You must submit to God. Look at the connection here between God and the shepherding of Christ's church. Verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says he's constrained by the Spirit. It's a word that means I'm bound, I'm tied up, I'm, I can go no place. And did you see the glorious promises the Holy Spirit made to Paul? Imprisonment and afflictions. And yet Paul says he's bound, he's constrained, it's as if his hands are tied, he can do nothing else. And in fact, he applies this exact same standard to the elders of Ephesus. In verse 28, Paul says that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, literally made you, placed you. He has appointed you, he's put you here. And in the fact, grammatically... Paul is saying with some precision here, it means that the Holy Spirit has placed you according to his own wise counsel for his own reasons, for his own purposes. In other words, these elders are placed at God's divine initiative. It doesn't make them infallible, and it certainly doesn't even mean that some of them won't fail, but they have been placed by God, by the Holy Spirit. I think this is a very good reminder both to the shepherds and to the sheep, that these men didn't place themselves. The very Holy Spirit of God orchestrated the events of their lives, orchestrated that the learning and the growth of the Word of God, which is necessary to be an elder. He orchestrated this internal desire to shepherd the flock of God. It's a, it's a yearning and a burning. And certainly the Holy Spirit had given them the spiritual giftedness necessary to lead God's people. But ultimately in making certain men overseers and constraining them to the gospel ministry, the Holy Spirit is working on behalf of the head of the church, isn't he? Look at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says his life is of no account. It's of no intrinsic value. Why is this? Because he has a singular goal, and that is to finish the mission that was given by Christ himself. The commission that came to him by Christ. There's some strong implications for shepherding from this idea of submitting to God. The shepherd of the church should be looking upward much more than he's looking outward. There should be much more a view of God than a view of people. There should be a constant yearning and a desire to obey Christ and to do what He says, to follow the Holy Spirit. This should engender an attitude of humility and fear and trembling and determination. It means we look to the revelation of the New Testament to find out the explicit wishes of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. We get our marching orders, we get our understanding of the church from Him and from Him alone. A group of men with gray hair sitting around making a decision does not make that decision right. A group of elders who look to the Word of God and say, This is what the Bible says, that's what makes it right. They must submit to God. This leads us logically to a second strong warning you must steward the church. You must steward the church. Now, steward or stewardship, it's not a word we use a lot anymore, but it's very useful to understand the concept of ownership. A steward is a caregiver. He's a guardian. He's a manager. And inherently, what makes him a steward is the fact that he's not an owner. He doesn't own the thing over which he is giving care. He is caring for something that doesn't belong to him. And so to whom does the church belong? Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church has been obtained by the Son of God, purchased by his own death on the cross by redeeming the elect from the eternal penalty of sin. This is so important to understand ownership. 2 Peter 2.1 says that Jesus is the master who bought you. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. You were purchased. And this is why Paul commands here in verse 28 to pay careful attention to all the flock. To care for the church of god this is a noun form which indicates ownership possession it can be translated to care for the church which belongs to god that and that alone ought to change your view of the church it ought to change your view of shepherding it ought to change your view of the sheep we don't own anything 125 times in the new testament we are called douloi slaves of christ and a slave doesn't own anything Never in the New Testament is the flock, the church, said to belong to the shepherds. Did you know that? Never says that. Peter told the elders of the church in 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God, the flock which belongs to God, that is among you, as God would have you. Do you see why worldly experience in working for ABC Corporation is irrelevant to the church? And we see once again this beautiful imagery chosen by God to define the relationship between the church and her leadership. The shepherd and the sheep image. This is, this is such an important picture because God gives this picture to demonstrate the relationship between the leaders of the church, the members of the church. Inherently, we know this means guidance. We know it means protection. We know it means care. We know it means love. The shepherds keep their minds on the church, keep their minds on the sheep. They're watchful, they're observant. They watch for the stragglers. They watch for the new believers who may be having difficulty in their walk with the Lord. This idea from verse 28 of paying close attention to the flock, paying close attention. This is a verb often used in the context of being aware of false teaching. It's an imperative with a continuous action, not just once, but continually. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. You're asking the question, generally speaking, how is the church faring? Is our doctrine getting straight? Is our overall sanctification and obedience improving? One of the reasons we as elders do shepherding visits with every family in the church is we get to ask those questions and we find out how are you doing doctrinally? How are you doing in your trust in the Lord? I know a pastor who came to a small church and he didn't really have very much to say when they were interviewing him. He just said, do you need a pastor? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm your man. Like he didn't ask any questions. And it was very unusual because usually pastors ask a lot of questions. But what he did was very simple. He looked at their doctrinal statement, which was about this big. He began taking a survey of what the people in the church believed, and then he simply began the process of preaching sound doctrine to answer all the false beliefs that he knew were in the church. He did this time and time again, Sunday after Sunday. A few people left. Most of them grew and changed, but the church was purified doctrinally. They adopted a solid uh, theological statement, and to this very day, because of the foundational work of that man, that church continues faithful and very, very influential in his community Because of what that man did. You know how long it took him? Seven years. Of just preaching the word. Over and over again. Paying close attention to the flock. Let me put it this way. The ownership of the church reminds us. That the flock of God is a people of immeasurable value. How do you measure the value of a people. Purchased by the blood of God. How do you measure that value? The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote this. Every time we look out upon our congregations, let us believingly remember that they are purchased by Christ's blood and that therefore they should be highly regarded by us. How sad it is when shepherds look down on the sheep. It's the opposite. You're the reason we exist. You're the reason we're here. I think when men comprehend the eternal worth... And the incomprehensible value of the sacrifice that Christ made to secure the salvation of the church. Then they should be compelled to expend their lives for the church. And ultimately, when it comes to being a shepherd, you just ask yourself the question, what else really matters? What else really matters? But Paul gives a sobering prediction in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. After Paul is gone and his influence becomes more of a memory, he's telling them, you need to hold the line. It's up to you. They need to be the ones who stand for truth. They need to be the ones who stand for sound doctrine. They need to be the ones who stand for a pure gospel in the church. Why is this? Because when the shepherds fail to guard the sheep, the whole church falters. The whole church hurts. And just how urgent was this duty? Paul reminds them of the standard that he himself set in verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, during this three-year ministry in Ephesus, Paul was so consumed with teaching and guarding and protecting the flock of God that it just wrung him out emotionally. He was concerned. He was overcome. He was overwrought with a godly anxiety that the church stay true, that the church hold the line. The shepherds of the church are compelled to do their very best to give a constant biblical foundation by which the sheep can be wise and discerning. The shepherds are to be aware, being aware of new trends, especially those coming from within the walls of the church in the world. Trends which threaten to derail the membership. When there's some new explanation of theology out there, our antenna is to go up and there are to be red flags waving everywhere. And maybe even from pulpits it ought to be said, don't do this, don't listen to this. What's the defense that the shepherds are to use? Verse 31, therefore be alert. Spiritual alertness. It literally means, therefore, stay awake. Don't let your eyes droop. There's a mental and a spiritual attitude of being ready for action. It's not just an attitude. It's, it's a readiness. What does alertness mean? It means acting. It means making a defense when necessary. Titus one nine commands the elders are to put a stop to whatever may be leaving the sheep astray potentially they're to stop it alex strach in his book biblical eldership he writes this the reasons for being alert is not just to be informed but to act a good shepherd is never passive He knows the necessity for acting quickly and decisively in the face of danger. He knows when he must fight and when he must stand his ground. To be aware of danger and not to act is to be a lazy, cowardly shepherd who betrays the flock. And the shepherd-sheep metaphor is so good, it reminds us, if you are a sheep, how would you feel about a shepherd that lets you run over a cliff? Because there's some flower that looks good on the other side, so you're just going to take off. No, the shepherd stands between you and the cliff and says, no, I won't let you run over it. But to submit to God and to steward the church, a third strong warning serves as a baseline for these duties. The third warning, you must scrutinize yourself. You must scrutinize yourself. Verse 28 Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves. This speaks of protecting your own spiritual condition, guarding your own soul. And listen, if I can put it this way, Satan has a very special place in his heart for attacking shepherds. Because if he deceives a shepherd, if he attacks a shepherd, if the shepherd goes awry, if the shepherd abandons the sheep, the whole flock suffers. Very rarely have you seen a church fall apart because one family gets mad and leaves. Very often have you seen a church fall apart because a shepherd fails morally or fails spiritually, fails doctrinally. The whole church splinters. And that's what Satan is going after. And so shepherds have to guard themselves. We have to guard ourselves against a cooling personal walk with the Lord that... We make the excuse, well, my work of the ministry is my walk with the Lord. No, it's not. I'm a Christian first and then a shepherd second. We have to guard against an indifference toward the truth or an indifference toward error. You can't have either one. The truth must stand as this glorious beacon that we love and we adore and we run to. And error must stand as something that we guard against and we watch for and we're careful with. Shepherds are to guard against getting caught off guard by popular teachers who seem to be giving new theological information. I've learned over the years that when a new book hits the number one bestseller list for months at a time, I'm going to be really careful about that. 2 Peter 3.17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I've heard of pastors who get derailed. They get obsessed with one particular issue or begin preaching from the news more than they preach the word of God. And they've gotten off track. Shepherds have to guard against bitterness, against what one pastor called the smallness of heart. We have to guard against discouragement. And yes, it'll be there, but we guard against it diminishing the ministry. I, I can't say I feel discouraged. I'm not going to preach today. That's not an option. And we have to guard against spiritual laziness using the so-called wisdom of experience instead of searching the Scriptures. Sometimes things happen in the church where we have to say it is time to spend days, yea, even weeks, searching the Bible for answers. That doesn't happen in a one-hour meeting. And for you as members, I got to tell you, one of the greatest prayers you can offer on behalf of your shepherds is that we would pay attention to ourselves that we would pay attention to ourselves. We're very aware of our own weaknesses and foibles. You know what it's like to preach a sermon every single Sunday that I can't live up to? That's a sobering thought. Every application I give, I have failed in some regard. Every time I've made a discovery in Scripture that I share with you, I think to myself, why didn't I know that already? And so pray for the sanctifying work of the Lord for your shepherds, not just for yourselves. And look what happens when the shepherds fail to pay careful attention to themselves. Verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 29 continues the shepherding and and sheep metaphor that the wolves will come into the church. They're savage. They're merciless. They're deceptive. They're destructive. And what's the primary tool of the wolf It is false doctrine. It is falsehood masquerading as truth. It's not usually a blatant denial of the Word of God. When somebody comes and they want to teach a small group and and they say, I don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. At Grace Bible Church, all of you would say, "Ah, forget you, we're not going to follow that. But when somebody begins to give subtle theological differences that are nuanced, that's when we must be careful. And how do you know a wolf, according to this passage? He cares only for himself. He cares for having people follow him. That's what's most important to him, that he has a following. They don't care for the overall health of the church. They certainly don't care if they make waves. They don't care if they hurt people. They don't care about the sheep. Now, the question is what do wolves look like? They look like sheep. They look like sheep. Jesus gave all of us a warning in Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's why the argument, but he's such a nice guy, is irrelevant. They look like sheep. No wolf comes and says, I'd like to destroy your complete foundation and trust in Christ by beginning to introduce some doctrinal baloney to you. Nobody says that. It just happens over time. And so what does Paul say? He gives the sobering reminder, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I'm always worried about a pastor who says he's on a theological journey. Uh, You don't want a pastor who's on a theological journey. You want a pastor who's been on that journey and is now teaching you about it. You don't want shepherds that are constantly changing their theology. That's not okay. Unless they're going toward uh, orthodoxy, then that's okay. Praise God for that. He says, pay attention, scrutinize yourself. You must submit to God. You must steward the church. You must scrutinize yourself. Here's a fourth strong warning. You must state the truth. You must state the truth. And we've talked a lot about the negative things to watch out for. On the positive, you must state the truth. In verse 26, Paul declares that he's innocent of the blood of all. That's a pretty strong statement. But why does he say that? He says that because in verse 27, he says, he gives the reason, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He taught the knowledge of God from the word of God in its entirety. He didn't skip the harder parts or the seemingly controversial parts or the things that didn't go along with the culture at that time. What Paul is saying is, when you deviate, it won't be my fault because I taught you what you need to know. Now it's your turn to hold the line. He said he discharged his duty. He stated the truth with boldness and without trying to edit God and his word. I've heard preachers in Bakersfield, California. I've listened to recordings where they say, I know this is a hard passage and I'm sorry for that. Why would you apologize for the word of God? You should say, I know this is a hard passage because that's what you need. And we praise God for it. In fact, the theme of stating the truth is heavily weighted in this chapter. Verse 20 and 27 use a Greek word translated to declare the word of God. Verse 20 uses a different Greek word to speak of teaching the word of God, disseminating the detailed information in the text. Verses 21 and 24 use a third different Greek word translated testifying, means to solemnly bear witness to something, bearing witness to the word of God. And verse 26 uses yet a fourth Greek word, translated also testify, and this means to bear witness with an urgency, with and being in a hurry and with resolve. Now, just to be clear, First Timothy 5 makes a distinction between all the elders as the spiritual shepherds of the church and a few elders who, First Timothy 5 says, labor in preaching and teaching. And so while all the elders don't necessarily have an equal share of stating the truth at the same level, all the elders are responsible to make certain that the primary task of the leadership is the facilitation of the effort and the labor of teaching and preaching. This may seem obvious, but the Church of Jesus Christ has been in the habit of forgetting the one single central imperative of the shepherd, and that is Second Timothy 4, preach the word. It's a three word job description. That's the goal. That's the mission. That's the objective. Everything else is of lesser importance. Everything else is derived from the preached word. One pastor said very memorably all ministry flows downhill from the pulpit. And yet, that's not the norm in the average evangelical church. But the central feature, the central imperative of shepherding consists of what some have called the Asians. What are the Asians? First of all, the explanation of the text, taking the time and the effort and the study necessary to explain the text of Scripture. Listening, listen, studying the Bible at times is a wrestling match. Do you know what it's like to look at the calendar and say it's Thursday and there are three good interpretations of this text? Which one am I going to take? James 3.1 weighs on me. Not many of you should become teachers for you will incur a stricter judgment. Lord, help me get the right one the explanation of the text there's also the declaration of the text this is no emotionless intellectual bible study the truth is to be declared paul didn't say and now behold i know that none of you will whom i have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again no he said it with passion and the word of god must be preached with passion The truth is declared. It's not just light. It's light that is given heat. So there's the explanation. There's the declaration. There's the proclamation of the text. The mere act of speaking aloud the words of God reveal the character of God. And that is a mandate. I don't know if you've noticed, but between Pastor Darren and I, we tend to read anywhere between two and four entire chapters of the Bible every Lord's Day to you. And that is by design. That is by design. The proclamation of the text were to pay careful attention to the public reading of Scripture. And when the Scripture tells us of the character and the glory of God, this is to be proclaimed for its own sake. That Ultimately, I think preaching is at its best. When the truth is proclaimed, you ready for this? Merely because God receives glory because we said his name aloud. We said that he is gracious and he is merciful and he is kind and he is good and he is great and he is all powerful and he is all knowing and he is everywhere present and he is all wise. Saying those things aloud. Gives glory to God. That is the proclamation of the text. Then there's the application of the text. The application of the text that the truths of the Bible aren't just monuments to the grace of the greatness of God. They are called to action. They are called to imitate the character of God, they are called to emulate the will of God, and they are called to emasculate the sin of our flesh. And that's the application of the text, but sometimes you might walk out of a sermon saying, "Oh, he didn't get me on that one." That brings us to the implication of the text. The implication of the text says that just because the preacher doesn't give a specific application aimed at you, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit hasn't done that. The Holy Spirit has been working and wooing and piercing your hearts. Can I put it this way? The preached word of God is a Gatling gun with white hot bullets and the Holy Spirit will aim them right at you. I can preach a sermon about husbands, love your wives, and the child can say, God has told me in my heart, I need to obey my parents. What did that have to do? I don't know, but that's what the Holy Spirit did. I love that. I know we're in a county that loves its guns, so I can use a gun metaphor. Isn't it great when you just put about 10 rounds right through the center of the target? I do that every Sunday. Only I'm not aiming. The Holy Spirit is. All I have to do is read the word, explain the word, declare the word, proclaim the word, apply the word, and the implication does its work. I walk away doing this, and the Holy Spirit is nailing you for weeks afterwards. I praise God for that. Often you may hear a church advertise, we give practical sermons. Can I tell you what that really means? It's code language for we won't make you uncomfortable, and the Bible is really primarily about how to make your life easier. That's a practical sermon. You know what the most practical thing you can do is, is to have your soul torn to shreds by the word of God so that you will obey Christ. Jeremiah says that before the preached word builds up into your life, and before it plants deeply into your life, it must pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow the idols of your heart. And so the shepherds are to be engaged in the Asians, the explanation, the declaration, the proclamation, the application, and the implication of the text. And this explanation and declaration and proclamation and application and implication is to be pursued with Determination. That the word of God is not here to make suggestions about your life. The shepherd is exhorted in Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of talking to a child. Have you ever talked to your child and you're trying to give them some important advice about life and they do this? What do you do as a good parent? You put this hand on this cheek and this hand on this cheek and you turn it towards you you say you're going to look me in the eye that's what this is let no one disregard you this is why preaching in person is important because when you do this I see you (laughs) and you can't disregard that you know what I'm thankful for is I'm thankful for the fact that shepherds are not held responsible to produce results we're held responsible to state the truth and God will do what God will do now ignore the truth at your own peril but that no longer becomes my problem. Paul said that he was innocent of the blood of all. He's proclaimed the truth and any deviation on the part of the elders of the church was not his fault. And what's the most important way you must state the truth? The fifth strong warning, you must stand on the gospel. You must stand on the gospel. I wanted to say you must believe the gospel, but it didn't start with S. You must stand on the gospel In verse 24, Paul said he's received the ministry from the Lord Jesus to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 32, Paul gives a blessing to these elders. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. The gospel message found only in the word of God. Listen, on the one hand, Paul rebuked the Galatian churches for deviating from trusting and standing on the gospel. On the other hand, Paul encouraged the Roman church. He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can I put it this way? There is no method. There is no technique. There is no manipulation. There's no emotional appeal. There's no secret. There's no system. There's no scheme. There's no approach. There are no clever one-liners. There's no routine. There's no medium. There's no style which can ever, ever, ever substitute for the power and the effectiveness and the sheer supremacy of the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Jesus, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no substitute for the gospel. What's the job of the shepherds? Say those things. <laughs> you must submit to God. You must steward the church. You must scrutinize yourself. You must state the truth. You must stand on the gospel. And that leads to the logical direction of shepherding, which is upward. The sixth strong warning. You must spotlight the kingdom. You must spotlight the kingdom. There's a clear connection between the gospel and being a participant in the kingdom of God. Verse 25. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul equates preaching the gospel with preaching the kingdom. Same thing in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Your coming inheritance, that's kingdom language. Your coming inheritance in the kingdom is the result of the preaching of the word of his grace. What does this mean? It means that eschatology, it means that the study of the last things, the study of the things that are to come, both eschatology worldwide and your personal eschatology, what's going to happen to you? The study of eschatology is part and parcel of the proclamation of the gospel. They go together. In fact, a false gospel can sometimes be spotted because it leaves out a future hope. Instead, a false gospel may focus on God making your life a lot better now. The true gospel says God's going to make your life a lot better later. He'll justify you now and glorify you later. The kingdom of Christ will be built in and through the church. And so a gospel call, a gospel plea must include begging the listener to be on the right side of Christ's kingdom. There are two kingdoms ever. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. In fact, the Apostle John says that the gospel transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is what the gospel plea is. Be found in the right kingdom. And for those who are in Christ, how great and marvelous is it that so much of Scripture deals with the world and the kingdom that is to come. I don't know if your parents ever did this. Once in a while, my mom said, I'm going to knock you into the middle of kingdom come. Oh, if only we could. That's the role of the shepherd. I don't knock you into the kingdom come, but I hope to lead you to the kingdom that is to come. To put such a spotlight, such a detailed understanding, such a hope, such an anticipation on the coming kingdom. We want to make your mouth water with the coming kingdom. I want your heart to ache for the coming kingdom. I want you to long to see Christ with your eyes. I want you to long to hear the words of God from the mouth of God. I want you to long to taste the glories of heaven and the coming kingdom. I want you to long to smell what a world without the stench of sin is like. And I want you to long to touch the King of kings and the Lord of lords with your own hands. And in fact, tonight in our study of Deuteronomy, the coming kingdom will be our focus as a large portion of our text tonight is devoted to the things that are yet to come. But in the spirit of the warning theme of this message, by design, I'd like to end on a more somber note concerning shepherding. Jeremiah 23, 1. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture declares the Lord. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Woe, meaning cursed, to the sheep, to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. The pastors and the elders, the next time that the churches of the world are called upon to scatter because somebody is getting sick, woe to the shepherds who scatter the sheep the shepherds are to gather the sheep my prayer is that the shepherds in our own little body here would be faithful to heed these warnings my prayers for all men hearing this whom god has potentially placed in the hands of commissioning to service may you heed these warnings and to you as the church may you be in prayer with and for your shepherds that we would be faithful That we would join with Paul in his victory proclamation. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You pray that. We'll do that. And God will be pleased to use us. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father we come to you now. So thankful for the clarity of God's word. Acts 20 makes our knees weak. It makes our lips tremble. It puts us out of joint because we see that the church owned by God, purchased by the blood of Christ is the very bride of Christ, the very body of Christ. And I would pray for all in leadership in our church, Lord, that we would have a somber and a a renewed vision for the, the weightiness of this duty. For all the beloved, wonderful sheep in our church, Lord, may they follow well may they live sanctified lives may they grow in the word may they listen and and become more and more mature lord for the young men among us that the lord may be calling to the shepherding ministry we pray god that you would give them the desire give them the the skill the training the recognition by others in the body that they are clearly called in this direction and may our little church lord in eternity be recognized for having raised up men to do the work of the gospel, to do the work of the kingdom. Let each one of us here look forward to the kingdom, look forward to that day when we all stand before you, lifting our voices and our hearts and our minds to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, face to face, no longer by faith but by sight, what a great day that will be. In the meantime, I pray that our little body, Grace Bible Church, would be found faithful and would be found diligent to pursue what Christ says the church is to do. We pray these things in his name. Amen.